Well, take your Bible, if you will, and turn to Genesis chapter 10. So many of the uh, eternal truths of God's Word have their foundation in the book of Genesis, and it's no mistake that the book of Genesis is so maligned by those who do not believe in God and do not trust God. And, uh, but God has some eternal truths for us in the book of Genesis. And I want to give you just a, a quick recap on something that we touched on before. I don't know if you were here that Sunday, but we, uh, we had talked before about Noah. And uh, we talked about his sons, and we mentioned how one of his sons uh, treated him with shame and contempt, while the other two of his sons treated him with honor. And so Noah did have three sons. One was named Shem, one was named Ham, and the third was named Japheth. And one day, after the flood, Noah became drunk, and he uncovered his own nakedness to his shame. Well, Ham, one of his sons, if you recall this story in Genesis chapter 9, Ham made a spectacle of Noah, of his own father, which was to his own shame. But Shem and Japheth came into the tent where Noah was, and they brought a blanket, and they walked in backward so as to not look upon their father's nakedness. And they covered his shame with a blanket. They acted like Christ, who provides a covering for our sin and our shame. But, but Ham acted like Satan. Who is Satan? Satan's the great accuser. And that's what Ham did. Ham went out and said, look, look at the old man. He's uh, making a fool of himself, and he had a good laugh about the whole deal. Uh, but it really wasn't a funny thing. Now, I mentioned that genealogy because one of the great lessons that we learn in the book of Genesis is that, family, uh, is that of family blessings and curses. Rabbi Daniel Lappin, whose uh, studies are, I'm very indebted to for this message, uh, gives the following example. You remember Abraham and Sarah, right? They're getting up in years. They don't have any kids at this point. And uh, they're past the childbearing age. But Abraham believes in his heart that God had promised him that he would have an heir. And so Sarah says, here, take my maidservant, Hagar. You can have her as a wife. And so that's what Abraham did. He, he uh, took Hagar as a wife. And uh, before, the, before anything else even happened, Sarah got mad about it. Can you imagine a woman getting mad about having to share her husband? I can't imagine such a thing. She got mad. At Hagar, became very bitter at Hagar, uh, even though it was Sarah's idea. She got very mad at Hagar, and so uh, she treated Hagar very harshly, so harshly that Hagar ran away. And Hagar encountered an angel, and the angel said to her, Hagar, maid of Sarah, he didn't say Hagar, wife of Abram, but Hagar, maid of Sarah, where are you coming from? And where are you going? When well, Hagar's reply, she answered the first question. She told that angel where she was coming from, but she didn't answer the second. She didn't know where she was going. She was just going away. She was just running away. She didn't have a direction. She didn't have a purpose. I remember when I was a little kid, about six years old, I was upset at my parents, and so I, I ran away. I ran all the way around the block. 
didn't have a purpose, didn't have a direction, didn't have a plan. But that's sort of like Hagar at this point. You know, running away is easy. Running away is immature. When you have a problem, it's easy to sort of run away. But running towards something means that you know who you are. You know what you're doing. You've got a purpose. You've got a direction. And so here's Hagar's character traits at this point. She has no purpose. She has no direction. She has no destiny. We also find out that she's quick to take offense. She's, she has a desire to be dominant. And all of these characteristics, Hagar passed on to her son Ishmael. And they're still being passed on to Ishmael's descendants to this day. You look at the modern-day nation of Israel, the modern state of Israel, which is not exactly the same as the old theocracy of Israel, of course, but, uh, but many of the people in that modern-day state of Israel are uh, biologically Jewish. They have, a, they have a line that comes from Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob. And, uh, and so they have established in their history principles for success. And you look at the nation of Israel, if you've ever been there, you see that it's a bustling society. It's an incredibly wealthy society, even though, how much oil do they have? None. But you look at all the different states that have oil, and it is only in recent years that they've begun to become anywhere close to productive as a matter of society. And so th these traits from Hagar's children have been passed down throughout the generations. Well, going back to Noah's kids, he's got two good sons and one rotten one. And the rotten one, Ham, he had a bunch of kids. And uh, not only was Ham cursed because he shamed his father, but he produced generation after generation of what we might mildly call difficult people. And so... In Genesis chapter 10, we have the genealogy of Noah. Noah and his sons and all of their wives have survived the flood. And they're filling the earth with children. They're filling the earth with grandchildren. And so Genesis 10 gives us the genealogy of Noah and his sons. And now, by the time of Genesis 10, there are 70 families on the earth. Each one of them developing their own unique skill set. And these individual families eventually became extended families. They became tribes. But even large tribes are not enough to fulfill God's plan. What did God tell Adam and Eve? He said, fill the earth and subdue it. After the flood, what did God tell Noah? Basically the same message. Fill the earth and subdue it. And you take a family unit, can a single family fill the earth and subdue it? No. But as that family becomes an extended family, can that tribe, if we want to use that term, fill the earth and subdue it? No. It takes something more than that. It's going to take a partnership because each of these extended families, 70 of them, produce different kind of skills. And so they're going to have to partner together if they're going to produce something upon the earth that will subdue the earth and to advance society as a whole. What we need to be reminded of is that part of God's command for us is to conquer nature. And to do that, that means that we live well with the least possible effort. 
We spend less and less time simply trying to survive and more time enjoying the gifts of God's life and God's creation. And so there's nothing wrong with modernity. There's nothing wrong with advancement in society. And these can be very good things. It's part of what God has called us to do. And since families are not enough to subdue the earth and neither are tribes, well, the door's open in Genesis chapter 10 for someone to come along and to introduce something new, something brand spanking new. And what this guy introduces is essentially an organization that can bring together all these tribes under one umbrella. We might call it the government. And this person introduces the government. And the good news is that such a man did come along. The bad news is that he was from the line of Ham. He was from a rotten line. Now, just because you may be from a rotten line yourself uh, doesn't mean that God can't do something miraculous and make a change in your life and break a generational curse. But what it does mean is you've got the stack, de- the deck stacked against you. And so we meet this guy in three inconspicuous verses in Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. And these verses tell us four things that I want you to remember. Let's read the verses. Genesis chapter 8. We read now, Genesis chapter 10, verse 8. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and uh, Akkad and Kauna in the land of Shinar. Now, these three verses tell us four things that I want us to focus on. Number one, there's a guy named Nimrod. Secondly, he became mighty. The English Standard Version says that he began to be a mighty one. So in other words, something new is here. Something something, uh, that's a paradigm shift is here. Something revolutionary here. So what was it? Well, he was, the third thing is, he was a hunter. What did he hunt? Rabbits? Quail? What did he hunt? You'll find out in just a minute. And the fourth thing is, he had a kingdom. And part of the kingdom was this place called Shinar. You might say, well, so what? So what's going on? Why is Nimrod an important character? Well, first, we need to start with his name. The name Nimrod means this. He said, get down. He's not talking about dancing. Nimrod means, I'm going to be above you. Get down. It's someone who suppresses. Someone who demands to be above the others. Now, second point we looked at. He started something new. It says he began to be a mighty warrior. He became a mighty warrior. What does that word began or became mean? Well, it's the Hebrew word for beginning. But in the Hebrew, there's a lot of different words for beginning. The word used in verse 8 doesn't mean just any type of beginning, but it means a revolutionary new beginning, a paradigm shift, a break with established tradition. When Henry Ford modernized the conveyor belt system and and, and all of that to produce something, it it, it 
shifted everything. Everything was brand new when computers came along and were mass-produced. It's, it's an incredible shift. Something big happened here. There was a break with established tradition. So what established tradition did Nimrod break from? Well, what's the obvious tradition that was established on the earth? What had just happened just a few chapters before? Great flood. And what did God do? God destroyed all the earth except he rescued Noah and his family. And so the great tradition that all 70 of these families recognized is that there was a great flood and that God saved us. Nimrod wants to break from that. Nimrod has a new groundbreaking idea. His idea is, let's advance society without God. We don't need God anymore. And I'll show you this in just a few minutes. Third thing we learn about Nimrod, he was a hunter. He was a great hunter. But what did he hunt? Well, everyone was a hunter after the flood. God gave everyone permission to eat meat after the flood. So why in the world does verse 9 say Nimrod was a hunter? Everyone was a hunter. What's the big deal? Well, ancient Jewish tradition says that Nimrod was not hunting animals because everyone was. He was hunting people, not to kill people, not to attack people, but to bring them under his rule. He seduced people into becoming sheeple. Remember what his name said. His name meant, get down, I'm going to be above you. That's what his name means. And so he was going after people beyond his own tribe, beyond his own family. And people began to acquiesce. I mean, they saw leadership qualities in him. Man, maybe he gives a good speech. Look at how forceful he is. And so, so people began to blindly follow him. They trusted him. And before long, they started to think like him. And they began to say, let's advance society. Let's live our lives without God. The fourth thing we learned about him was his kingdom was in the land of Shinar. So what? Well, every time there's a, a Nimrod in biblical history, someone who's a tyrant, someone who's oppressive, and beyond that, anytime there's a Nimrod in modern history, there's also a kingdom that he runs, a Shinar. And you'll, you'll see, if you can identify the kingdom, you can sort of identify who the Nimrod is. So let's move forward to Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, in verse 1, here's what we read. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Now, just as an aside, if you read chapter 10, it says that each of these tribes had different languages. So what's going on? Are they the same language or different languages? I mean, some people might say, aha, there, the Bible's contradicting itself. 
It says in chapter 10, it's the, uh, different languages. In chapter 11, it says it's the same. Two different words are used there. In chapter 10, the, uh, the word for language is uh, it's, it's the Hebrew word for tongue, but in chapter 11, it's the Hebrew word for lips. And what it really means is the lips are part of the overarching general language. It's the boundary for the flow of communication. Uh, but the tongue directs the nuances. And so basically it's the difference between a whole new language and simply a dialect. Um, I went to the air- airport last month. And uh, I, I met a lady there. A lady sat next to me. She was a little bit older. And uh, she, w- she told me she was waiting for her daughter to pick her up. She had just arrived. And I said, uh, well, where'd you come from? She said, New York. And I said, well, you have an interesting accent. Uh, I didn't think you were from around here. And she said that she was born in Hungary, but she lived most of her life in New York. And so even though she didn't use the word y'all, like uh, I may have, um, I could still understand her. We could still communicate. We just simply had different dialects. That's what you have here. And so in chapter 11, it's a different word. The entire, all the families of the earth spoke the same language. In verse 2, we read, It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they settled there. Who rules Shinar? Nimrod. You won't find Nimrod's name in chapter 11. But you know who rules there. It's Nimrod. Because where a Shinar exists, a Nimrod exists. And so the people settled there in Shinar. That doesn't just mean they they lived there, but they embraced a lifestyle. They embraced a philosophy of their leader. They embraced the philosophy that Nimrod would have them to embrace. And so Nimrod, he was the first person to sort of preach this message Let's get rid of God and build a society on our own. He may have been the first one to say it, but he's not the last. There's at least one Nimrod in every era of human history, including ours today. And then in Genesis chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, here's what we read. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, if you read these two verses, read verses 3 and 4, which one should logically come first? Verse 3 said, hey guys, you know what we can do? Let's make some bricks. Won't that be fun? Let's make bricks. Isn't that exciting? No one gets fired up about bricks. But in verse 4, the people say, let's make a great city. And you know they didn't say it on their own. They were led by somebody, led by Nimrod. Let's make a great city. Well, what are they going to have to do to make a great city? They're going to make bricks. Why not stones? Why not stones? You know, there's something, uh, an interesting study if you go through and you look at what the Old Testament says about bricks. You probably never did a study like that before. 
But the most famous bricks that we ever read about in the Old Testament is where? Exodus. What did the Pharaoh do? Make them make bricks. Make them do it faster. Make them do it without straw. And so bricks became sort of a symbol of oppression. You know, there's some differences between stones and bricks, too. Big differences. Number one is stones are made by who? By God. But bricks are made by man. And the second thing is this. Every stone is different. I can go, I can, I can show you all the stones. I put out a bunch of little river rocks in the front of my house because I don't have to mow river rocks. I like river rocks. Uh, and so I, I'm not a very good gardener, but I put all these river rocks where there used to be a beautiful garden. And I can pick up right now any two of those rocks. They'll be different. Every one of them. I mean, the bag looked the same. Every single rock came out of the same bag. But every single rock is different. Every one on the face of the earth is different. Bricks, they're all the same. If they're made the same way, they're all the same. If we were to take two bricks out of my house, no difference, right? They're made by man. They're identical. One of the differences between a godly leader and a tyrant, a nimrod, is that a godly leader will want you to celebrate your God-given uniqueness. Your God-given uniqueness. But a Nimrod says, I want you to all be the same. It's for the collective good. Some of you are rich, it shouldn't be that way. Some of you are healthier than others, it shouldn't be that way. You should all be the same. That's what a Nimrod does. And he makes everything out of bricks. You look back at the altars that are built in the Old Testament. How did they build the altars? With what? With stones. You look at the New Testament. One of the images of the church is that God is building for himself a place of worship, a temple made out of Holy, living stones. That's you and me. Everyone is unique. Everyone is uniquely made by God. When we see trends coming from our government that discourages individuality, we need to take notice. When we see trends coming from our government that, u- that use the power of the sword to enforce heavy taxation as to make everyone submit to the same kind of transportation, the same kind of schooling, the same kind of school lunches even, the same kind of health care. We need to understand there's a Nimrod at work. There's a tyrant at work. And so instead of becoming God's temple of living stones, the government is making us into man-made bricks. What message is coming from our government? A good government will send us this message in all of its ways. You are a unique, distinctive person. You come from a unique, distinctive clan or culture, a unique part of society. And the government says, I recognize and I defend your God-given rights, your inalienable 
rights. I recognize that, and I will defend that, the government says. There's another type of government that says, we want you to be like everyone else. Now, when people see themselves as uniquely created by God, with our rights coming from our Creator, they will resist being enslaved. But when people start to believe, I'm of no account. I'm no different than anyone else. That's a people that can be enslaved. I want you to see that there are clues here in God's Word that will help us identify the tyrannical Nimrods in our day. And it's not that every Nimrod becomes an Adolf Hitler, becomes a Joseph Stalin. I mean, as tyrants go, those guys were quite successful at being tyrants. And hundreds of millions of lives were damaged or destroyed because of it. What's a tyrant? A tyrant is simply someone who seeks power by suppressing other people. And I want you to understand that Scripture's not teaching that there's not a place for government, even though this first chance at having a government was led by a bad guy. There is a place for government. We need government. But we need government to protect our freedoms, to allow for our God-given differences. And we need government to submit itself to God as the highest authority. A good government does not restrict our liberties, but defends us from those who would. There's something else I want you to see in verse 3 that you need, to, you, you need to understand. And it's the glue that's used by Nimrods to hold their enslaved society together. Verse 3 says, They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. I'm going to speak the Hebrew here. When it says they use tar for mortar, it literally says they use hamar for homar. It's a, it's a word play. What is tar? Well, your translation might call it tar, or it might call it cement. Uh, it might even call it slime. It might call it bitumen. The reason that your translations and all of our translations may say something a little bit different is that we don't know what the sticky stuff is. It's just sticky stuff. It literally sim simply means it's just stuff. It's material. It's material. And the Nimrod of our day wants you to become a man-made brick instead of God's temple of living stones. And so your individuality must be suppressed. You must be the same as everyone else. No child is left behind and no child is allowed to, to excel. You're all interchangeable. It's all for the common good. And what's the glue that binds us all together? The only thing that can bind us all together is materialism. By materialism, I don't mean buying extra stuff at JCPenney's. I don't mean financial wealth. I don't mean the accumulation of wealth, although that's a problem too. But in philosophy, I'm talking about a materialistic view of mankind. In other words, there's no room for spirituality. There's no room for faith. All that matters is the material, the physical. And to you, 
the only thing you're worth to the government that would be led by Nimrod, if you are not producing something for them, then you are worth about 9 or $10 in chemicals. Because you are a chemical composition made up of hydrogen and oxygen and carbon and all of these other things that are within you. And so there's no room for spirituality. Science is everything, and faith is ignored. So spiritual traits, such as honesty and integrity, are devalued. They're ignored. They're discounted. And so to enslave a people and become a tyrant, Nimrod needs to diminish the spiritual and exalt the material. But if people are healthy spiritually, there's less need for the government. Less need for the government to suppress them. Less need for the government to control them. You go back and you look at some of the great revivals that happened. The Welsh Revival over the early 1900s. You look at the Great Awakening, First and Second Great Awakening, and see what kind of effect that had on society. Alcoholism was diminished greatly. Crime was reduced greatly. Marriages were saved. The divorce rate plummeted. An incredible effect because people got right with God. Because when you have good and humble, God-honoring people, what do they do? They pay their taxes and they obey the law. They submit to government. But when your nation produces a large number of unspiritual, value-bankrupt people, what do they do? They steal. They cheat. They break the law. Why? They're following the Nimrod that doesn't even follow the law himself. It is very difficult to enslave a spiritually healthy populace. A healthy society is one that has a holistic view of humanity. Holistic meaning both material and spiritual, faith and physicality. One that values both, because that's how God made us. So in verse 4, here's Nimrod, although he's not named, we know it's him because they're in the land of Shinar, and they want to build, the people want to build a giant tower. Why does Nimrod want to build a tower to heaven in verse 4 because every Nimrod recognizes that you can't make people serve you by saying you know what I'm going to do I'm going to enslave you we've got a we've got a new presidential election coming up soon you can get excited about it hold your nose about it I don't know what you're going to do but the one thing you won't hear from any Democrat the one thing you won't hear from any Republican is my goal is to enslave you and to lift myself up and to become powerful over you because I'm a Nimrod. Get down, I'm going to rule over you. No one's going to say that. What are they going to say? Let's build a tower to heaven. Let's do something together. A Nimrod knows that in order to hunt people down, and capture them. You have to appeal to the natural desire that every one of us have to strive for greatness, to strive for heaven. And so that's what they'll say for. That's what they'll say. Let's 
strive for our highest aspirations. Here's phrases used by Nimrods to enslave people today. Let's make a war on poverty. Let's provide health care for all. Let's stop global warming. Let's stop terrorism. Man, that's great. Utopia. It's the promise of heaven, right? What are they they doing? They know that people will give up their freedoms and subject themselves to massive taxation if they believe that they are doing good. Hey, good's going to come about from this. All Nimrod tyrants know this. In order to get us to lose our individuality and become enslaved so we accomplish the tyrant's goals, the tyrant must appeal, this is the interesting thing, the paradoxical thing, he has to appeal to the spiritual values within our hearts. And so a tyrant will will promise heaven for everyone, health care for the sick, jobs for the jobless, salvation of the environment. But he'll only deliver more suffering more oppression, more racism, more strife, more pain, and more death. Why? Why is that an inevitability? Even if a Nimrod himself has the purest of uh, intentions in doing that, why is it inevitable that those results, those negative results, will occur? Because that's what happens when God-given individuality and freedoms are exchanged for sameness and tyranny. And so we have a choice. We have a choice between equality and freedom. And you can't have both. The unfortunate thing in our society is that many times when these elections come about, and you've got two people on the ballot. They may both be Nimrods. One might be more of one than the other. Sometimes we don't have a real good choice at the ballot box. But that doesn't matter. Because what we need is we need God to intervene. And if God intervenes, things are changed. God intervened with that tower to Babel. Look at verse 5 of Genesis 11. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. You read that phrase, the Lord came down, and you probably think, "Uh uh-oh, hammer time, right? God's going to squish them. He's going to crush them. He's going to do a repeat of the flood. Not exactly. Because here God is having pity on the people. Because the people were so foolish in being misled by Nimrod. The people were lied to, and they believed it. The people were hunted down and captured by a tyrant. And so here in Genesis 11, we, you know, we, we know the end of the story that God's going to confuse the languages. And we think, oh, that's the, that's the horrible judgment of God. No. I want you to see that this is a merciful action. God doesn't come down in judgment to wipe them out, but it's, he came down to save them from the tyranny of Nimrod. 
How do we know? How do we know that God wasn't acting in judgment, but mercy? Well, verse 5 calls them something interesting. It calls these people the sons of men. Literally, the sons of Adam. It calls them the sons of Adam. Do you know what God called the people of Noah's day? He called them flesh. He called them meat. He said, I'm going to wipe all this meat off the earth. Because they've become so deranged in their thinking that it is as if they had lost their soul and they were nothing more than flesh. Not so here. Here in Genesis 11, God calls them the sons of men. This whole ordeal is really quite pathetic. Here's Nimrod. He gets humanity to serve him so he can build a tower to heaven. But all of his efforts, all of the king's horses and all the king's men, they build this great tower to heaven, and it's so pathetic that God has to come down to them to see it. They're, they're going to get up to heaven. They're going to go see God. And God is in heaven saying, you didn't quite make it, did you? And he had to come down to see them. You didn't make it, did you, Nimrod? You didn't accomplish your goals, even though you enslaved the people. And then we read in verses 6 and 7 these words. This is God speaking. He said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. So God says, Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. Here's the deal. If people are not going to follow God's ways and they're going to choose a Nimrod to rule over them, well, the power of universal communication can do a whole lot of damage. You see the social damages that are done these days by the power of communication, social media and all of that. Who would have thought even 15 years ago that we would ever have an issue regarding same-sex marriage? But this thing has exploded on the scenes. Why? Everyone's able to communicate with one another and sort of, quote, get things done. And so God himself comes down. And this is an interesting thing. What's Nimrod's name mean? Get down, I'm going to lift myself up. What does God do? God comes down to lift us up. A good leader will act like God. He will lift up the common people. Nimrods view common people with contempt because they think they're better than all of us. But God loves common people. The good news is that God loves to rescue common people from Nimrods. So what about us today? Here's what I'd have you do. We live, I think, in a very oppressive time. I think that if we had leaders like Benjamin Franklin and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson today, they wouldn't put up with what we put up with. We live in a very oppressive time, but I don't want you to be discouraged. 
I don't want you to be distressed about living under a tyrannical government. Sometimes a Nimrod's not a person, but it's an entire government system. Just remember these things about Nimrod. Nimrods want to advance society without God. Does that sound like any kind of government you know? Nimrods hunt people down so, so, so as to subject them. Get down, I'm going to be above you. Nimrods suppress your God-given individuality. You're no different than anyone else. You didn't build that business. They want to make us into bricks. All the same. For what purpose? In order to get us to accomplish his goals, which is to acquire even more power. And he seeks power by suppressing people. And in order to gain that power over people, Nimrods diminish spirituality or faith. They laugh at it. They, they have disdain for it. Disdain for people. They talk about people who cling to their religion. The message of all Nimrods is utopia, heaven, a tower that we can build together. Heaven awaits Let's build a tower to get there. All I need from you is a little bit more. More of your money. I need a little bit more of your energy. And a little bit more of your liberty. Just a little bit more. And that monster is never satisfied. The good news is that God, like he did in Genesis chapter 11, may intervene. God may intervene. Why? Because He's merciful. He cares for us. He may rescue us from the Nimrod of our own making. But, in order to do it, in order to destroy the power of the Nimrod, God may have to break apart that kingdom that the Nimrod rules over. We need to be careful as a society, especially as Christians within a society, that we continue to honor those that rule over us, that we submit to them. But we must also have a prophetic voice, one that says what is right and one that says what is wrong. And we're willing to stand for that which is right.